Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Welcome back to the Casey Adams Show. Today we have Yaya Mokhtarzada here with us, the co-founder of Truebill. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Yaya. Happy to be here. Yeah, so I know you know everyone sees this headline that recently came out. You guys just got acquired for $1.275 billion. And I'm excited to get into the story today. But I mean, first off, like, how are you feeling? This news just came out. It's very exciting. And um, I know I'm just having the opportunity to speak with you just days after. So I'm sure you're still feeling it. Yeah, yeah. The deal closed um, two days ago. So you know, still sort of taking it in. It's definitely not what I expected. Um, you know, I, I think it, overall it's it's a bit surreal and overwhelming and it's, you know, we're super excited about the acquisition, obviously. And I'm I'm really happy about where we ended up with the acquiring company. Um, I think it's it's a mission that the team's excited about and it's it's a team that I'm excited to work with. But, um, you know, it's, it's a whole wide spectrum of, of emotions. The way I've sort of described it is it's like your your child going off to college. Um, you're sort of happy that you know they're they're going off to Harvard or Stanford or something, but you're also a little sad that the house is empty. Um, I don't have kids, but I imagine this is what that would feel like. Absolutely. No, and you know, I, I think one of the most exciting things that I am about to jump into is just you know, everyone sees this number, but you know, like I would love for you to dive into like where this all started. You know, everyone sees the end goal now, they're seeing this huge number, but like where, when did this begin? Where did this idea for Truebill come from? And what was some, some of the origin conversations that brought this idea into the world? Yeah, absolutely. So I started Truebill with my brothers. Um, we've, we've sort of always worked together and always been entrepreneurs. And by entrepreneur, I mean, you know, like a lemonade stand that became a lawn mowing business that became a snow shoveling business in the winters. But as we got older, we got a little bit more sophisticated and we started creating websites. So we created a company called webs.com. That was uh, build your own website uh, and free website hosting uh, platform. And that was acquired right at the end of 2011. So a few years later, you know, I think we collectively had the itch to, to start something again and, and also just get, to get the band back together. And we sat around in my brother's basement for a few days trying to think up the next big idea. And what I where we sort of landed with that was I sort of realized like you can't just think up a, a billion dollar company or a billion dollar idea. That's just not how it works. Yeah. So I was like, you know, after, after about a week of us, us thinking with nothing to show for it, I said, look guys, like we're not going to be able to think up the next huge company. We just need to start building stuff. So let's just think about things that we want, things we need and start building. So we sort of 
churn through uh, two ideas pretty quickly. Um, and these were not, you know, again, big ideas. These were like small features that I just sort of wished were out there. Um, and then with Truebill, uh, it was kind of serendipitous. So my brother um, was kind of brought up that he'd been surprised that he was paying for a home security system on his old house for a year. And immediately that resonated with me. And I was like, dude, the same thing happened to me. I was paying for in-flight Wi-Fi for 14 months before I caught it. And so, you know, we're like, well, is there is there a solution for this? So I remember I logged into Mint to see if it could show me all my subscriptions and it couldn't. And I logged into Amex to see if there's an easy way to see who was you know, billing me on a recurring basis and there wasn't. And so, you know, we said, well, let's just build something that fixes that. So, you know, it didn't take more than a couple of days, but a few days later we had an algorithm that would connect to your bank account, pull down your transactions uh, and show you your recurring charges. And we sent that out to friends and family and, and two interesting things happened. Um, one was, it seemed like everyone we sent it to was finding things they either didn't know about or didn't want anymore. But two is, um, you know, as uh, after a few days, we were getting about 30 signups a day, which meant that, you know, just this primitive thing that we strung together, people were sharing uh, because they found value in it. So we said, all right, there's, there's something here. Let's at least spend a few more weeks on it and see where we can get it. And then from there, um, I don't want to say it took off, but, you know, we started getting more data and I guess started becoming more aware of the potential of where this thing could go and what it could be. It, was this already an app or was this, like you said, just a simple algorithm that you were sharing with friends and family? In the beginning, it was a website um, with a, we used, um, what was it? it was, Google had these like open source free sort of front end. I think it, it was called like the bootstrap templates. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we threw a really like just templated front end on there and it was really just a list. Um, it would, again, you would, um, we'd use Plaid, which is this service that connects to bank accounts. Um, so you put in your, your credit card username and password, it would pull down transactions and give you a list of your subscriptions. And then from there, we just started adding to it. So we said, okay, um, you know, seeing them is great, but if there's one you don't want, canceling these things is a pain. So let's add one click cancellation. So we did that and I was spending a few hours every day, like on the phone or emailing services, trying to cancel things that people didn't want anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then uh, still, still for us at that point, it was really just a project. Um, and my thinking was, look, you know, there's no, there's not really a business to be had um, showing people their subscriptions and canceling them for them. Um, but we sort of had an epiphany where the, the scope of the mission expanded. And I said, look, this is not going to be a company about canceling subscriptions. This is going to be a company about eliminating financial inefficiency in general. Um, and so we started adding features like bill negotiation or bank fee refunds. And that's when we started getting revenue and, and start, and kind of committed to making this thing a, a real company and a business instead of just just a project. Um, and then from there over the years, that that sort of sphere of what we saw as our mission continued to expand. So it was a few years later and I said, look, this is not a platform about eliminating financial inefficiency. This is just the best platform to run your finances in general. And that's what we need to build. So we started adding things like dashboarding and credit score reporting and transaction monitoring. And then in the last year, I think was our final sort of biggest expansion where I said, this is not just a company about seeing and understanding your finances, this is really the complete financial platform for your, to just improve your financial life in general. So in the next couple of months, we're gonna roll out a credit card. Um, and last year we launched things like, uh, like pay advances to help people avoid overdrafts um, or um, uh, automated savings, which is uh, a service that helps people just sort of set aside a few dollars every few days or every, every week towards 
a savings goal or that's safer rainy day or safer down payment on a car or something else. I love that. I mean, and it seems like, you know, just that mission of pivoting and continuing to expand, it seems like that was always the way you guys operated since day one. And just, just hearing that is so cool because, you know, like I said, like you see this, this number, this acquisition, but hearing how you guys just started with a simple project and you weren't, you know, setting out to build the next unicorn company that's has this massive acquisition that you saw a problem that you were having personally and you solved it. And um, I, I'd love to expand on that because I know you had a previous business before Truebill. Was that, has that always been you and your brother's thesis when it comes to building companies or like what are some of your um, entrepreneurial just philosophies when it comes to building successful startups or companies overall? Yeah, I think, I think for me, it starts with just what's the problem you're trying to solve, right? Um, and I think a lot of people put the, put the cart before the horse and they start thinking about the business plan or the revenue streams or um, the TAM or, or really anything else. Um, and I think, I think that's backwards, right? The first things first is build something that people are going to want. And I guess I'm a little bit of a contrarian there because we had a heck of a time trying to raise funding, fundraising for the first few rounds. Really, no one wanted to touch this thing. And, um, you know, there was a, the objections that, you know, they were, we got all of them. So, so I pitched VCs and they say, yeah, you're growing right now, but this is just a niche product and you're going to run out of like people that are interested in this niche feature and that's your growth is going to taper off. Or we saw, we, we talked to other investors and they said, yeah, you're, you know, we could see a huge percentage of the U.S. population needing this thing, but you're never going to be able to monetize, right? Um, and both of those are sort of, I mean, I guess I don't agree with the niche thing, but the the monetization, you know, I guess I, I see the reasoning there if you look at the product for what it is today or what it was at that time, which is, you know, this subscription tracking cancellation platform that is difficult to monetize. But I think you sort of need to abstract one step back and say, like, you know, is this, are they, are they delivering value? And from here, are there clear next steps and clear expansion opportunities where they can continue delivering value in, in a way that opens, that like integrates themselves deeper into the consumer's life and kind of puts them in a position to basically capitalize on that value in, in either directly or indirectly. And, and I'm just curious if you can get into it, but what has been the, the biggest revenue opportunity as you guys opened up in these different operative markets and different feature sets. Yeah. So, you know, we, we kind of stumbled into our revenue model two years in. So for the first two years of the company, we really chugged along. And, um, one of the pieces of feedback that, that we got in the, in the dozens of, of investor meetings where we got turned down was that no one's ever going to want to pay for this. Um, it turns out that was incorrect. So today the company's revenue is, I guess it's public now, so we're on track to finish the year at a hundred million annual run rate. Wow. And um, the vast, vast majority of that is actually premium. So users pay us a few dollars a month or, or an annual fee to be able to use the platform. Well, rather the platform is free, but for, for premium yeah. features on the platform. Yeah, no, that, that's incredible. Um, and, and I also, I want to get into just, like the raising capital part. I know you guys like raised multiple rounds, but um, you said in the early days, it was challenging. And I think a lot of founders can relate, especially if it was their first time. I just closed um, first round of funding, ever raised capital, just just above a million. And, you know, I learned That's a lot awesome. this year from doing that. And the first time raising capital at 21 and just did now have gone through that and say like, okay, got it. We got it done. Um, I'm curious to know from you guys, like what was what were some of the early, early hurdles when it comes to fundraising? And <laughs> importantly, how were you able to overcome those to actually get the deal done? 
um, and then take those lessons into future rounds. Yeah, so we've done five rounds of funding um, up to now prior to the exit. Um, and each one was was unique. So the so the seed round of funding, uh, no one would um, would commit a big check. So typically, you know, you go out and I'd know like what your largest check was. But um, we went out and you know I, I was thinking we would need two million dollars, and so I went out and tried to raise two million and just couldn't get it. Couldn't get any any large institutional investors to to want to take a serious bet on us. So. It ended up being over over two years. We sort of cobbled together 2.7 million in, in seed seed funding, but that was literally done in 20 to 100k checks, um, and it was not done upfront. You know, there was there was a solid year where we had you know three or four or five months of runway left in the bank, and I was on a wow. weekly basis like getting a 25k check. We were burning about 100,000 dollars a month at that point, and so. Yeah. You know, every week I'd, I'd have uh, have investor meetings and I'd raise 25 or 50K and I'd say, all right, that's like one or two more weeks of keeping the lights on. Wow. Um, Just hearing that is so incredible. Like, wow. It's, I don't, I don't know if you do interviews often, but like just hearing this come from, you know, you see this, the news and, and, and knowing like how you guys were operating in that time frame. I mean, that's, not only so cool to hear, but like to reflect on that, I'm sure that makes you feel like, you know, it was all worth it, right? Like not everyone has a, a an exit like you guys have had, but I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs have felt that, you know, we're running out of money, we're running out of money. And stories like this is what, you know, inspires people to keep going. And I'd love to hear like in those challenging times, like what was it that kept you and your brothers going and how were you able to navigate the pressure? Um. Yeah, so... I mean, it was it was definitely a tough time. Um, you know, at the time, I was the one responsible for the fundraising, so I actually sort of tried to hide the uh, financial picture from my brother, who was who was CTO and, and leading engineering. And I was like, okay, you know what? Like, he's got his burden is engineering, and he's delivering on yeah. that. So I'll 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 take the the pressure for the the fundraising and the finances. Um, it was tough, and you know, I'd love to say like what kept me going was like supreme belief in the mission or the product or something, but. Honestly, it was it was fear of failure. Um, you know, I would I just lay in bed, not able to sleep, thinking about the the calls I'd have to make to the investors who put in money, explaining to them that um, that they were wrong for for believing in me and, and that I'd lost their investment. And um, I just really didn't want that to happen. I didn't want to lay off the employees and say, you know, you took a bet on me and and you were wrong. Um, and, and quite frankly, I wanted to to prove the people who passed wrong also. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I'd love to say, you know, there's some big altruistic vision that I refuse to give up on, but um, no, so I think it was just, it was pure survival instinct. Um, what, where, where it gets interesting is so, so um, finally towards the tail end of that, we, we figured out our business model and the business actually took off and still no VCs would touch us for the series A. So we, so the founders actually ended up having to give the company a loan to, to keep it alive. Um, and like right as that was running out, that's when we finally got an investor to uh, to to take a chance on a on a what was a pretty small Series A. Um, and even then, usually what happens is, um, you know, your lead investor wants the wants the most allocation possible. So if you're raising five million dollars, they they usually want at least four and a half million um, or as close to that as they can get. In this case, they did the bare minimum. So they they did two point five million and told us we had to go out and fill up the other two point five million on our own. Um, and if we couldn't do that, they were out. Um, so it still wasn't a, wasn't a huge uh, vote of fate. And it wasn't really until the series B and C that um, 
fundraising got a little bit easier, but still, even then, you know, it wasn't like we had, um, you know, you hear about companies where they're getting offers and counter offers and bidding wars. Uh, it was not like that for us. For the B, you know, I must have pitched at least 20, I, this was a while ago, so it must have been somewhere between 20 and 50 VCs, probably closer to like 30 or 40. Um, and only one said yes, and that was Eldridge, who was a fund I cannot say enough great things about. But, you know, they're the only ones who wanted to do it, and so we did it with them. And then the C, we got another great fund, Investimer. Um, but um, again, that was not because they pounced early, and it was not because they put in the highest bid. It was literally out of the the 30 funds we pitched, they were the only ones who would say yes. Wow. That is that is so cool to hear. I mean, yeah. And, and, and keep in mind, the business was was growing six x uh, annually at, through through all each through each of those rounds. See that that's just crazy to me. Like, why why do you think it wasn't like that? Like you said, that story you hear the bidding war. You're growing six six x year over year, and, and what was it? What were they afraid of? And I'm sure they're reading the articles now, like hitting themselves. But like, what? Why do you think that they were thinking like that? Just so like other entrepreneurs that are out there, it's like, how do you? You know, what's your advice for them when they're pitching funds and what have you learned through the process of, you know, speaking to dozens at scale in multiple different rounds and how has the narrative changed and just what advice would you have overall if you were to talk about fundraising at these different stages? Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a few questions in there. So let me try to unpack that. Um, you know, the first one is, is you know, why, why did all the VCs pass? Um, and I, I think they operate on a really specific sort of, model of pattern recognition right and in this case um you know we were really focused on execution and operation um and when we went in and we present when we presented you know we showed the metrics as is and and we gave goals that or future projections that we were very confident we can hit and you know our deck and our slides were about why this is a great business um and you look at the the sort of the mega rounds out there with, with huge valuations or huge revenue multiples, right? Like the WeWorks of the world or the, the Juiceros. And, you know, what they're, what they're pitching is not what the business is today, but what the business is going to be in, in 10 or 20 years and how it's going to be this trillion dollar company. And, and I think VCs are just sort of wired to, to respond to that for, for some reason that I don't completely understand. Um, but beyond that, you know, I, I think you know, the space that we carved out for ourselves is a space that historically is full of failure. I mean, you think about, okay, an app to help you manage your finances, it makes a lot of sense, right? But as of last week, the biggest acquisition ever in that space was was Mint for 160 million, right? Not not 16 billion or, you know, 160 billion IPO or even, you know, 1 billion, right? So, so and then the second biggest exit was 100 and then the third biggest exit was 40, right? So. You compare that to ride sharing, right? And you know, biggest exit was a hundred billion. And you compare that to gaming, where the biggest acquisition, you know, biggest acquisition was I think like twenty billion or thirty billion or something, right? Um, and so it's just it's a space that had a bad reputation, and I think people didn't really understand it. Um, I also think VCs had a lack of empathy in terms of what we were building. In that, um, you know, we would go in to meetings and I'd say, look, you know, this app saves people five hundred dollars a year, and they'd say, okay, like why does anyone care? Or like, you know, why do I need this? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, you know, you're not the target demographic here. Um, so, so I think there, there was, you know, maybe I can say this now that it's post exit and, and we've sort of proven something, but um, I do think there was a lot of blind spots that I'm, I'm frankly surprised at, at how pervasive they were. 100% and I, 
That makes sense. And it, it's, it's cool because I, just for context, too, like I've been using Truebill for, I think, almost, almost a year now. And I've been loving it. And it's funny because I'm here visiting my, my parents for Christmas. And even just last night, I'm talking to my mom. She's talking about this bill that she realized was you know, paying, she was paying $12 a month for the last year right. and a half. And then I, I put her on the true bill. Cause you know, I'm talking about how we're about to do this interview and I'm like, wow, like there's still so many people. I'm sure like just the fact that you guys have this acquisition and you guys are going to be continuing to build like it's it, in so many people. Um, like it's, it's such a clear problem that needed to be solved as, as I'm reflecting on it. Someone that's 21, that's, you know, on these personal finance apps that, um, I mean, you guys have really carved, carved your way and it's incredible to see what you've created but i'd love to talk about like post exit right it's like as a founder like how are you feeling what are you excited about and like how do you envision the future now that you know as you said like your your baby went off to college and now you have to like view your world in a completely different way i'm sure yeah yeah, yeah. one more one more thing just real quickly on the on the fundraising um you know yes what what advice i would have for people going through the fundraising process um yep. As we went through over the years, there was a lot of frustration for us. And I remember being especially frustrated that um, competitors would get way higher valuations, even though we had more revenue or, you know, we'd go into board meetings with our existing investors and they say, all right, you're crushing it. You know, raising your next round is going to be a breeze. And then it wasn't right. But in the end, that actually ended up being a really good thing for us, I feel like. Um, you know, I know personally that if early on we had gotten, you know, a $15 million Series A or something, I would have kept chugging along um, trying to create a product that ultimately wouldn't achieve the unit economics to be a viable business, right? The reason we were so focused on monetization and the reason we were kind of forced to scramble to find a, a viable business model is because we didn't have funding and we had to make it work, right? Yeah. Um, and then and then sort of, you know, in the mid midlife of the company, um, again, cash was always scarce for us. So we always had to operate at, at near break even. We always had to have a focus on retention monetization rather than building sort of pie in the sky products. Um, and that ended up serving us really well. So it's, you know, it's very tempting to think, oh, I need this huge amount of money to do what I need to do. And the reason I can't do it is because I don't have the funding. And that's almost never the reality. If you're building, you know, complex hardware or something, maybe that's the case. But, you know, on, on consumer software, or even B2B software, um, I really don't think that's the case. And I, this may sound cliche because I've heard this before and I always sort of shrugged it off, but sometimes, um, not having a ton of access to capital is is actually a blessing and and i feel like looking back our you know capital limitations actually ended up being a competitive advantage between us and our competitors wow that, that's super impactful to hear yep um cool. so yeah so in terms of jumping to to what excites me you know so we spoke to a few uh, different companies when during the acquisition process, and, and we got strong interest from, from a few. Uh, but with Rocket Mortgage, it was just really very clear that that's where there was the most synergy. Um, so for instance, you know, we spoke to banks and they were like, hey, it'd be great to have you know, this great tool to help people manage your money, like built it, like plugged into our, our banking app, right? And yeah, that, that makes sense, but it's not synergistic. It's just a cool feature to add on, right? Yep. With Rocket Mortgage, where it start, really started making sense and what sort of clicked for me is they said, look, we get millions and millions of visitors to our website every month. And you know, only a very small percent of those people actually convert to a mortgage on that, on that visit. Uh, and for the rest of them, that's it. They bounce and we have to recapture them. We probably have to pay to recapture them to bring them back, right? 
And you look at like why people, you know, why the vast majority of people don't get a, a mortgage on that. Well, one, you know, most people are probably just doing research, planning for a future purchase, right? But then you also have people who, you know, they're not ready yet because they don't have the down payment or they're not ready yet because they're, they don't qualify because their credit score is not good enough or they are um, some other piece of their finances needs to get ready or, you know, they're, they're getting ready and they haven't found the right house yet, right? But in all those cases, Truebill provides this really great tool to form a relationship and deliver value prior to the purchase. So if the person if the person is you know planning or trying to trying to prepare for a purchase in six months, you've got Truebill which can say, all right, great, you're gonna make a purchase in six months. Let's start saving money. Let's let's start putting aside more money towards a down payment. Let's cut out subscriptions you're not using to to get rid of unneeded expenses, right? Um, let's uh, let's look at your credit score and see what we can do to build credit in the next six months, right? Um, and so these are all things that are really important in the process of buying a home that really aren't connected to any mortgage or home buying platform that I'm aware of and and really give Rocket Mortgage a really killer way to establish a relationship and deliver value uh, ahead of the actual purchase and to just set that consumer up for for healthy finances post purchase. Right. Because that, that relationship doesn't have to end when the mortgage is, is closed. It, you know, it can persist for years after that. That makes total sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it seems like a clear fit. And uh, I, I know when we were just getting into the conversation, you said like the acquisition conversation um, from like, hey, this is an idea to closing. How long was that time process again? Sure. So um, we had our first conversation in June. I hope wow. I'm not saying anything confidential here. Um, but we had our first, so, so we'd spoken a few times over uh, starting in March 21, March 2021. Um, but in June, we had a really great conversation and said, let's explore this. Um, from there, you know, we, we met with their executive team, uh, spent some time sort of thinking through synergies and, and that sort of thing. And it was about the start of October was when we said, all right, let's, let's try to make a deal happen. Uh, so, so from the start of October till, you know, mid, no, mid December, uh, was working through diligence, legal, finance and everything else yeah wow. which for a deal this size is is kind of insane uh if, yeah, you, if you're not familiar with it you know i'm yeah. slightly familiar but no that, that seems very quick and i mean props to you guys for making it happen that's so exciting yeah and, and they were they were awesome about it i mean you know we were getting obviously we were super motivated to do a deal so we were working really hard but we were getting emails from their team at you know 11 p.m on saturday like with questions about data that they were digging through you know yeah. around the clock what was like from founders that are at that level that are maybe having those acquisition type of conversations at any level, like what was the most challenging part of diligence and what do you recommend founders do other, you know, if they want to put themselves in the best position when those conversations start happening? Yeah. Um, so, so <laughs> there's a lot of things I would have done differently over the years. One thing is just um, keep better records. Okay. So, <laughs> So from day one, keep all your employment agreements in, in place. Make sure everyone signs the same set of employment agreements. Uh, make sure they all sign non-compete and assignment mention forms. Um, keep all your NDAs in one place. Keep all your IOs in one place and all your SaaS contracts and everything else, right? Um, just the, the effort in sort of, you know, collecting all that when your company is, our company is now about 160 people um, is, is monumental. Uh, so that's that's easy things you can do. Um, the other thing is uh, 
you know, maybe this doesn't matter at the, at the really early stage, but as your company gets a little bit bigger, invest in, in accounting and bookkeeping. Um, you know, they're going to, if the acquisition is a, is a decent size, they're going to have a third party firm comb through every single number in your, in your books. And, um, if any of that accounting is done in a, in a non-GAAP compliant way, that's going to create a lot of, a lot of questions and a lot of, you know, a lot of extra work that at the, at the 23rd hour that you don't necessarily ideally want to do. Yeah. No, that's very quality feedback. I appreciate that. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny cause like you hire your first person and you just sort of save the, um, the, you throw the offer letter in a cabinet, right? The signed offer letter. And then, um, you know, you hire your 10th person, you throw that in a cabinet and then 11th, you switch to digital. So now you have like your first 10 in a cabinet and then you've got a bunch of digital and then you switch to new platform. And those are, those are stored over there. Um, and it sounds, it sounds trivial, but, um, it, it, it adds up. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Or, or, or you let someone go and, um, they didn't sign the termination agreement three years ago and now you're chasing them down now. <laughs> oh my God. I can, I can hear the stories with <laughs> it. Uh, so what is it like, or what has it been like, um, you know, going through this whole process from starting to acquisition with your brothers? And I, I asked because, um, myself, I have two older brothers, uh, we're all boys and just growing up, like, we don't do any type of business together, but I always envisioned that like in, in such a unique way. So I'd love to hear from you. Like what has it been like to not only start, grow, scale and sell uh, a business with your brothers, like on your team? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely awesome. They're, they're, you know, my favorite people in the world to work with. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, first of all, we're, we're super lucky in that each of us has different functional areas. So the way I think of it is, um, my younger brother is CTO. So he leads engineering and all things technical. My older brother, um, he's a great, uh, just a great motivator, a great figurehead, but also, um, he's really, really fantastic at product. So he's effectively head of all things product. And then, um, that leaves me sort of with everything in between. So marketing operations, legal, and, and, you know, whatever else needs to get cleaned up along the way. Um, but I think, I think that really clear division of functional areas, uh, makes it easier. And then, um, beyond that, I think it's just really efficient. Um, the way we communicate is really efficient. We sort of understand each other's thinking and, um, you know, I can say something and my brother will be like, no, that's, that's the stupidest thing you've ever said. Let's move on. And you know, my feelings don't get hurt by that. I, yeah. I know that if he's saying that I probably am wrong and, and we can move on. Right. And so there's, that's awesome. yeah. That's awesome. And, um, I'm curious, you know, like having that moment together, uh, like what was it like when you got the final news that things were, you know, you're, you're still in the company. Like, what was that moment like for you and your brothers when that, you know, maybe it's, it's it, the door is closing. It's official now. Like that <laughs> is such a special moment in my opinion. And I'd love to know like, what was that like? So I don't want to, I don't want to like pop your bubble here, but, um, <laughs> please do <laughs> as a founder, because, because believe me, I've fantasized about that moment, like for, for six years now. Right. Um, yeah. or for more than that, for my whole, my entire career. And as a founder, that moment does not exist. What happens is you have a moment where you say, Hey, there's a 5% chance this can happen. And then there is a 15% chance this can happen. And so that, that big moment was a moment when we went from 99.8 certainty to hundred percent certainty. Right. But that sort of, that climb was incremental over two and a half months. And yeah. so by the time we went from, cause, cause you know, it's like Tuesday, you, 
you know, you're talking to the, the, the acquirer and you're like, all right, we're going to aim to sign Friday. And then Wednesday, they're like, all right, we're on track to sign Friday. And then Thursday, it's like, okay, everything's looking good for tomorrow, right? So you don't, you don't have that moment that the employees have when you pull them into the, like an all company meeting, and you say, we've been acquired and they're all shocked and excited, right? Um, but also, you know, at the tail end of that acquisition, you were so tired and beat up. I think we were all just drained and looked at each other and, you know, it wasn't jumping around screaming and celebrating. It was like, well, guess, I guess we did it. Um, I guess that's that, uh, you know, um, and then, uh, everyone's like, man, are you, are you going out to celebrate tonight and, you know, going to party? And I was like, honestly, I'm ordering sushi and watching a movie because <laughs> I am just beat and dead. Yeah. I mean, that, that's so cool to hear though. I appreciate the transparency on that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe other people are, are just better at it than I, um, but it, it definitely was not how I would have imagined it. And I think it was disappointing for my friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, I'd love to like, as we're wrapping up here, I'd love to just go way back to like growing up. Um, like what was the relationship like with your brothers and like, what were some of your early career aspirations um, like, when you were growing up? Yeah, like I mentioned, we we always worked together, or, or I guess a better way to put it would be, I always worked for my older brother. So, um, you know, I mowed lawns for his lawn mowing business and I shoveled snow for his snow shoveling business. But, um, you know, I think we were fortunate. Our parents had a home office. So, you know, we had access to computers and a, and a copy machine and, and, you know, technology in the house. We were sort of early on to, you know, get the internet and high-speed internet. Um, and so I think, I think seeing that, sort of gave us that that entrepreneurial bug or the belief that you can start a business and and do it yourself um but beyond that i think i think we just have a really fantastic bond where um you know we we all think similarly we communicate really efficiently um and we we genuinely care about each other and i think that ended up being a real real gift was that at any point at every point in the company there was there was no time where my relationship with my brothers was not more important than the business um and and just knowing that knowing that helps you sort of take a step back and say you know what even though it's stressful or even though i feel really strongly about this or i disagree about that it's not that important my relationship with my brother is more important yeah well, i love that just standing on that as the, the driving force and has been super important throughout the whole process well cool well last question yeah yeah before we wrap up here is just if you were to go back in time and do it all over again uh, what would your advice be to your younger self and why? <laughs> um, man, that's a good question. What, what, what age self am I talking to? Cause it would vary over the years. Let's say like, you know, like first entrepreneurial endeavor. Yeah, and that would be that, just getting in that, you know, that groove of like going to build something. Yeah. I would say, um, you know, I, I really wasted a lot of time with Truebill because you look at like the Instagrams and the YouTubes and even the Facebooks of the world and they didn't monetize for the first couple of years. Right. And so I remember I used to say like monetization is for like losers and do and those who can't monetize. Right. Cause like the hero companies out there are the ones who don't monetize. Right. Or like, like, Again, Instagram sold for what a billion dollars without ever making a dime, right? And you sort of hear those stories, and those are the the companies you look up to. Um, well, you're not Instagram, and if you are, you don't need my advice, right? So, um, I would say, you know, I would tell myself, listen, like, monetize early, not because the revenue is going to be meaningful, right? But 
monetize early because that is really your only true North Star. You're going to get people, you'll have no short of a, a shortage of opinions in terms of like features you should develop or directions you, sh you should go. And the people giving you those are, are clueless, right? Like what matters is what your users want. And the truest measure of what your users want is what they'll pay for. Absolutely. And that's, that's great. I appreciate that. Yeah. And so, you know, the way, the way that manifested was we spent years building, you know, we spent two years building out features that, um, you know, over the years we've, we've actually stripped out of the app because they just weren't what people wanted and they weren't useful and they weren't valuable. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, we were fighting to stay alive that, uh, we started looking at, okay, like what actually generates revenue, right? And let's, let's double down on those areas. And that was sort of the, the inflection point in business. That's very impactful advice. I appreciate you for sharing that. Well, and great. Well, books. Yeah, totally. Um, with that being said, yeah, yeah. Where's the best place for everyone listening today to follow you, to stay in contact with you and to learn more about Truebill and what, what's happening moving forward? Yeah. So, well, Truebill is just truebill.com. Um, and then, uh, I'm not huge on, on posting my thoughts, but uh, I know I need to do a better job of it. I'm on Instagram. It's Yaya M, Y-A-H-Y-A-M. And so, um, yeah, I'm going to try to do a better job of sort of documenting the journey from acquisition onward, as well as I think now it's cool in that I get to be a little bit more honest in, um, you know, telling, telling what happened over the years instead of trying to paint a rosy picture. Absolutely. And, and with that being said, I appreciate you for all the stories and wisdom and just sharing the whole journey from start to you know, acquisition. And I really appreciate your time. And I know for everyone listening, if you already aren't following Yaya or using Trivial, make sure you go check it out. And again, Yaya, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate the time.